This week's episode is such a treat to share with you all. I had the opportunity this summer to interview Betsy Myers for my Inspired to Life series, and I am so proud to share this conversation with you. I know that it will inspire you to push yourself to new realms of possibility. It will encourage you to really think about your own leadership in your life, your role as a leader in your life. Um, We talk about leadership in so many different ways, what it means to lead as women, uh, what makes a great leader, the difference of being a leader on the outside versus the inside. We talk about single parenthood, and it's such an important conversation to discern between the kind of leader you really want to be in your life and in the world and how you're showing up. And so why not speak to the people at the helm of this stuff? This is Betsy. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know you're going to love her and it. I'd love to hear your feedback. So let me know what you think and enjoy the show. Take a seat at the table next to me, Robin Ivy, and some of today's most meaningful thought leaders, mentors, and spiritual guides, and even some people like you and I, as we discuss their extraordinary lives and adventures in being human. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to Inspired to Life. I'm so glad you're here. Today, my guest is Betsy Myers. I can't wait for you to meet her in case you don't know her already. Betsy Myers is currently speaking and leading workshops around the world on changing nature of leadership. Her book, Take the Lead, Motivate, Inspire, and Bring Out the Best in Yourself and Everyone Around You, continues to be the basis of her work as her experience spans the corporate, political, and higher education arena. In May of 2011, she was appointed founding director of the Center of Women in Business at Bentley University, where she developed best practices for corporate America to recruit and retain women leaders. Betsy was COO of Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, and prior to that, she served as executive director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, beginning in 2003. During her tenure, she focused the center's teaching and research around authentic inner leadership. As senior official in the Clinton administration, Betsy was the president's senior advisor on women's issues. As deputy assistant, she launched and was first director of the White House Office for Women's Initiatives and Outreach. She played a critical role in Clinton's re-election effort in 1996 and figured prominently in shaping the administration's legislative agenda on issues such as domestic violence, reproductive choice, breast cancer, and women in business. That just makes me want to say thank you on behalf of women everywhere, Betsy. Seriously, Aww, really, yeah. like, thank you. That's gigantic. We did a lot of wonderful things in the Clinton years that I think people forget about, but particularly, you know, the president was, Clinton was such a advocate on domestic violence, mm-hmm. eradicating domestic violence because yeah. of his own childhood experience. Right. So there were issues that we took up, you know, like that, um, like looking at how dealing with breast cancer and, and things like, you know, that he was passionate about, like at that time in the mid nineties, uh, women weren't, some of the insurance companies weren't paying for breast reconstruction after mastectomies wow. and wow. Uh, things like that, that he took on. And, uh, and I think we really made a difference. And one of the things we, we did, I'll never forget was the domestic violence hotline, oh. which was kicked off with the white house and the, and Donna Shalala, who was then the, the, uh, secretary of health and human services. Yeah. And that hotline is still out today. And it's, it's helped like That's over amazing. Yeah, so we did some good things that I'm that I really hold dear to me, um, and and just the the honor of working for a president in a White House. 
I listened to you say in an interview that in, during his administration, he really wanted to get 40% of the leadership roles in the White House uh, to have women fill those. Yeah, not just the White House, but his whole, the whole government. Oh, and so, the whole, wow, that's impressive. Because, yes. you know, a president comes in, he has so many political appointees. There's about 5,000 right. or so across the federal agencies. So the White House and then the federal agencies and, um, you know, other posts, uh, you know, across the world, the ambassadorships and all that stuff. And um, he, his goal was at that time, now he, you know, remember that was 1992. So we're right. talking like 29 years ago or, or 28 years ago. Right. So he had people in the White House that were devoted to making sure that women um, would fill 40% of those slots. How true is that today? Well, I think, you know, when you think about it, there is, I think, in government, and I know in um, Obama and Biden's administrations, there are commitments to those, not just um, uh, women, but but uh, African-American color, people of color, and right. that kind of things, diver diversity, right? I mean, we've seen Biden so committed to it, and his cabinet is amazing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, Hispanic representation, Black, um, gender, he has transgender, you know, yeah. so just things that he's really committed to. I mean, the world has changed a lot in the last 28 years. I think yeah. now it's expected that a president will, and, you know, also President Biden has a new equity council that they're looking at across the government and making sure there's equity uh, across the federal agencies, but also as a model for the rest of the country as we yeah. look at diversity and inclusion um, issues. It's so important. Like now, more, I mean, why it's taken this long, I don't know. But well, yeah, no, it's amazing how we really have kind of, you know, when I went to Bentley um, in 2011, which is, gosh, 10 years ago now, um, wow. it was amazing to me that uh, we were still, when we started to look at the numbers of women in the senior roles, C-suite, we call C-suite, you know, the executive mm -hmm. vice presidents, vice presidents in corporate America, that we had plateaued, you know, 10 years ago, we were still plateaued at about 15%. Wow. And so we've creeped up somewhat in corporate America, mm -hmm. but most companies, banks, accounting firms, insurance companies have on average about 20% of women in the C-suite. Wow. So we've stalled. We have mm -hmm. stalled. We are making progress, but we still have a ways to go. What do you think is holding us back? Well, what's really interesting, and I've been saying to my clients, I spent the last decade with mostly in companies. So yeah. um uh, what's been interesting, and I have said to them, you know, if you want to have, because what's fascinating is when I wrote my book, the statistics that came out will have been out and I'll continue, which is 70% of American workers are disengaged wow. in the workplace, disengaged. And 20% of that number is actively disengaged. So what does that mean? Looking for other jobs, surfing the internet, mm. you know, whatever they, they do. So, and then what companies are grappling with is lack of retention. So we can hire, but how do we keep people mm. because we've invested all this money in them? And then how do we keep them at their happiest and best productive selves? Well, well and you're keeping them to perform at that rate also seems a little crazy. Well, right. Like we pay, spend that much money to retain people only to be 90% disengaged. The whole system seems a little screwy. Exactly. So what's going on, right? And then millennials. So what's been happening is, you know, companies have been saying, wow, we can't keep our millennials. And right. millennials are gender neutral. So millennials wow. just turned 40. Okay. Yeah. So they're wow. in, they're making significant strides inside companies. And I, when I give my talks in public places, I always ask, so I have asked traditionally, 
how many of you in the room are, are millennials? And it's so funny because their hands will kind of go up like, like, oh, you know, and I'm like, no, raise them high. Because well, they're not 12 anymore. Well, they're not 12 <laughs> and they're, they're making shifts. But the thing about millennials, two things about them. One, they're gender neutral. So men and women, millennials want the same things. Wow. And they are shaking up the workplace because they're saying, wait a minute, we <clears throat> want to have a life. We want to, you know, it's very simple with millennials, which is tell me what my job is. Tell me how I'll be held accountable, care about me, care about me. So tell me how I'm doing and let me live my life. So let me have the flexibility to live my life and deal with whatever it is, whether it's a kid, a dog, I'm running marathons. Right. Well, guess what? Women have wanted the same things. You know, particularly, you know, we're both moms and if you're a single mom, you you need more flexibility. Well, any stage of mom, whether you're married, not married. And so what I have said to companies is, if you guys want to deal with the engagement rate, the um, retention rate, it's you've got to figure out the flexibility piece mm-hmm. and the working from home piece. And, and anyways, what's amazing. Which is, shifts the power dynamic though, right? Like inherently that creates, like that dismantles a hierarchy in the way that we've known it because in that flexibility, the lack of flexibility came out of a need for control. The micromanaging of wanting people to be able to check on you. I mean, granted, like in the eighties, we didn't have laptops we could just take home. So it was part of it was like, you actually just had to be there because that's where the stuff was. But right. there was a lot of control playing into that. Oh, know? well, leadership was a very uh, masculine model, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. masculine model meaning do as I say or else, right? Butts in the seat because the boomers, butts on the boomers, uh, I'm at the tail end of the boomers, you know, we came up that way. So we, that well, gosh, I did that, you know, so a lot of my clients who are boomers were like, I did the eight hours a week. Right. <laughs> I didn't have that flexibility. But the problem is there's a new, I call it the modern workforce. And in order to accommodate the modern workforce, you have to have a modern workplace model. Well, here's the crazy part of the whole thing. COVID comes along and we have a giant pilot on working from home. And guess what? It works. It works. So now we're going to see as companies are going back to work, you know, how this is going to play out. But the relationship to work Mm -hmm. is shifted is shifting even though there are some financial organizations like morgan stanley who are like back to butts in the seat but that's an old model and there's all kinds of articles but people will be quitting because i like i i know a friend of mine uh works for the catholic church in the in the missions and there there are people who are choosing to leave because as they require them to go back they're like but we're in the digital marketing space of that and we don't we don't need to do that like i don't need to work here and have my butt in a seat if I could do the same job for company X and stay right here at home. Totally. Like, sorry, but that's not going to work, especially now that I can't eat food there anymore because the cafeteria is closed and, 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 you know? Well, yeah. And it's like, so it's really interesting to see, you know, this old model of like, wow, um, the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs said, oh, the stay at home is an aberration. No, actually, it's not an aberration. This has been happening for the last He's decade. He's clearly but- never done it. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, this is the, the white male in a high position, you know, in their late fifties and sixties, who this is what they've done. This is all they've seen and they can't envision a new way of doing things. And when I've been challenging some of my clients and I have one big bank that I'm working with, which is why not be the place where people can do good work, make good money, but also be, have a flexible, you know, work schedule so they can manage their life and also 
be a place where people can grow to be their best whole selves. I mean, that's the other thing that's happening. How do I bring my whole self to work? How do you, yeah. How do you bring your whole self anywhere right now? You know, I, I do a lot of this work in the coaching I do, because I feel like, I feel like one of the reasons coaching has become so valuable and also just such a thing is because we've compartmentalized our lives in so many ways that there are very few places where we get to be our entire self anywhere, right? Like for a lot of people, they don't want to share their full self in their marriage. They don't want to say things like I'm considering quitting my job, honey, because they know that their husband or wife will like have a heart attack just in response to that. So the dialogue becomes minimized. Now they can't bring their whole self to the marriage. Well, then they can't go to work and talk about the thing because they can't share that with employees. Okay. You can talk about your friends, but if your friends aren't in that field, it's not quite the same. And then, so where do we get to go kind of like we talked about before the thing, where do you get to go and have a container where you can kind of throw the spaghetti of who you are at the wall and say, I don't know if this is working. Actually, this part's really working. If I could just tweak these things, if we could just figure out this part, this whole category would work really swimmingly, but we don't really have places to do that. Well, it's really interesting. It's such an interesting way to to say it because it's so true. You know, in in a way, the COVID, right? One of the, the beautiful parts of COVID was that we got a, a a view into people's lives. Right. So, right. And, and so like even my bank customers, like, yeah, you know, we for a year, right, we saw each other's living rooms or kitchens or puppies or kids or so all of a sudden we got a view into into each other's lives, but we also got to view our own lives. One of my bank executive clients said, you know, I actually got to engage in my life. Because I spent all, you know, he's very high up in the organization and he was saying, I've been traveling my, and I, you know, I have these kids and I got to spend time with them. And, and so it's like, wow, this part of me and my life, you know, that I got to spend more time with and wow, people are realizing, well, that's really precious. I don't want to miss these things. in my kids' lives. I don't want to feel disconnected from my wife. Uh, I don't all, whatever issues, I don't want to leave my dog alone. Well, we almost like force people to be with the discomfort long enough to override the part where they typically would have jumped ship. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're sitting in the house and your marriage is coming apart or it's just has been maybe numb or you're just traveling both, whatever you like each other, but you didn't know and now you're sitting here on a couch together for 18 months. It's yeah. a whole different perspective of like, what are we going to do about this? Right. You know? And what matters? And like you, you, there was nowhere to go. So I think it really gave people an opportunity to, if they chose it, to also really like, kind of sit with what is. Well, and also like people start to go, wait, wait a minute. I was on this grind. Okay. Of getting yeah. on, getting on a train, going into New York city, you know, these crazy hours, getting home exhausted. Like people are saying, you know what? Like that, I can't do this anymore. And so it's this big awakening of how is industry, you know, across the industry, companies across the industries going to think about work differently and be a place where people can do both, can work, contribute, have a successful career and manage their personal life. That is what women leaders have been wanting to do forever. keep growing in a company and then they can't manage their life. And I have, well, that's because I think at the be, I mean, ever since I had kids and, and was working, it's like, because it's not a reality to consider these things in channels. Like we don't have the luxury as moms to consider just what happens at work. Right. Like, that's great to talk about that, but we don't, we don't get to stop the conversation there. Even if somebody else did like, that's great. But then there's also 
<laughs> behind curtain number two, it's like, there's dinner, you know, like, uh, these people need to still have, get to soccer. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, we used to call it balanced. Can we have a balanced life? But it's really an integrated life. How do I integrate my work life with my, my personal life? And the, the interesting part is that our personal lives ebb and flow. So what our kids need when they're two right. is than when they're 13. I mean, for me, my daughter, I have an almost 19-year-old daughter. She needed me more in high school. Mm-hmm. than she did any other time because that was you know a lot going on in our life and she I felt like wow I needed to be more present during her high school years than I was you know when I was I mean you always have to be present but sure but when she was littler and we had people helping and stuff like that and she mm-hmm. you know so and that's different for everybody sure. right that's everybody's different. kid is kind of in a different place. Some kids really yes. need a lot of support psychologically and physically when they're eight. And some kids yes. need it a lot more in high school. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And but I think that's part more. of why women tend to think of like the collective of like what we, you know, like we all know, cause we have kids, we have friends who have kids who at eight needed stuff that they didn't at 15. So we sort of have an ability to keep the whole in mind. But I, I honestly think that just goes back to our, our like, uh, hunter gathering like our lizard brain of like we really were accustomed to being together and keeping an eye on all the things you know we weren't we weren't built to do focus on one thing and go after that one thing with all the gusto and you know that's not what we were built to do right and that's the old model of leadership was right Right. all about work and that masculine model and um of work, you know, work comes first and sure. family second. And the millennials are like, no, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna not know my kids. You know, there's a well, they've been built with a much more integrated value system, it way. seems like, right? And they're just not gonna do it. You know, what's really interesting, one of my clients right. was telling me that he was head of he's head of HR for a global bank. And he was saying, what what's interesting about the millennials is you can't throw money at them. Right. They don't care. Their freedom matters more. Yeah. And they'll wait out a bonus, you know, so they'll take, yeah, I'll take the bonus, but then it comes on, you know, April 30th and May 1st, I'm out. So, you know, where baby boomers are like, yeah, okay, I'll take the 50 grand bonus. Or But I think that's because millennials, like my mom, she's 85. She was a depression baby. Right. So her parents, like she grew up with a, like her mother ironed the, um, the wrapping paper. You know, and I and I think there was sort of a built-in loyalty, and that really almost came from fear of like, listen, you be loyal, get the job at GE, and be grateful for it. And then you stay there your whole life, and you thank them that you have the job, and you show up, and you dutifully mm-hmm. put your cog in the thing, and go home, and and say thank you. You know, and I think the that's a completely different paradigm. Thankfully. Well, you know- yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I remember asking my father who I have a uh, dad, my dad's gonna be 87. And, oh, cool. And he's just doing- We should really be interviewing them for yes. this, honestly. And it's interesting because he the was- The next a, series is people yes. over, yeah, because the wisdom of that generation, oh my goodness. Totally, yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah, what really matters. And, but at the time when he was growing up, he was um, a test pilot for Lockheed and then- and then he, you know, worked his way up the company and um, he had various big jobs. But I remember once as a teenager asking him, dad, you know, are you happy in your, and he did love his industry. He loved everything airplane, which is, has been his North star, but he said, happy. He looked at me like happy. 
like, like what I do you mean about that? Because I have a family to take care of and provide. And, right. and what's interesting is that when I was at Harvard, um, the undergrad, there was a class on happiness that was sold out. I mean, you know, it was, would fill up so fast. They had to add another class on happiness. And so this new generation is like, you know, wait a minute, I, I, I want to be happy. I want to work for a company that makes the world better. I want to be in a place I feel cared about. Right. So it's just a different thought process. Yeah. It's almost like there's the consciousness of both and exists in the culture of millennials that just didn't in ours. Right. Like I feel like I have lived with that most of my life, but I was an anomaly really. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the status quo. Well, don't you, I don't know. I mean, I remember coming out of college in the eighties and uh, you know, the shoulder pads, the, yeah. suit, the shoulder. And I, I used to do that with the shoulder pads and the <laughs> sure. little ties and um, uh, that we were trying to kind of be like men, right. It was like fit into that, that model, right. You know, although scarily, my daughter and I were in Zara the other day shopping. Did the, don't they, tell me they were back. Please don't say shoulder they pads. Back. There was jackets for, you know, suits and they and I pulled one up and I'm like this is pretty and it was like oh my god it has shoulder pads <laughs> you're like put it back put it back I was like my daughter and I'm like oh no no we're not going back to shoulder pads <laughs> I have I have been known to humiliate my own teenagers by stopping children in malls and things and being like that was so bad the first time though honey like you don't don't buy that now like that neon that was bad the first like don't and the acid wash pant don't we just already did that. Like we already have gained the wisdom. So you don't have to run through that fire. We already did that. You know what I mean? We pat, we don't know. We don't need to do that. <laughs> have you always been passionate about women's issues? Always. Was that, was that, I know I was listening to another interview where you were talking about your mom and how she was really cute and was saying, even in like the nineties that like, look, we've been still asking these same questions right? Like when she came to hear you speak in the nineties, it was like, but we've been asking these exact same questions from the seventies. Yes. You know, and I feel fortunate. Like my mom, my mom was, a, um, she was a rebellious woman of her day too. And she ran, she actually ran the, um, for a Sinai burn center in Boston. She was the director oh. of that at a time when, you know, when the nursing whites were still the caps and the shoes and the whole thing, but she was really a renegade in her, in her era for, for not taking a lot of shit and, and stepping up for things and, and having an opinion, which, um, you know, she'd lose her job over things like having an opinion back in the day. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And I, I feel very grateful to have been raised by a woman who very much stood for that. Like I can remember it, when I was in the first grade, we were given an assignment to draw something that started with the letters like A through F. And in one of my six squares, I drew for B a bra. And my, and my mom got a phone call because that was not appropriate. And like, that wasn't okay. And I was like, you're not going to want to make that phone call, oh. but they did. And I was like, ah. and then I got moved out of that. My mom was like, we're not having that. Like it's a bra. We wear them. Of course we're going to, why wouldn't she be able to put a bra as a B? It's a thing. We wear them. That's like, you're glad lucky she didn't put boobs. We have those too. Like I would have been okay with that also. Like she was very outspoken about that stuff. Times have like, changed, haven't they? Oh. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting that like she literally had to move my first grade classroom. I had to get moved out of the class because I was because she and my teacher then had an altercation about my ability to use bra as an example oh of a God. word. Yeah. And it's like, OK, that's interesting. Like in 2021, we're, oh. we're having conversation about whether trans kids could wear a bra in the first grade, you know, or fifth grade, whatever. But, you know, it's an interesting, yes. interesting well, my parents met in the University of Wisconsin and my mother was 
uh, had skipped a grade. So she went in at uh, 17. And so she was a 17 year old freshman, met my father who was five years older and he was a fifth year senior. So they met. And of course, in those days in the you know late fifties, uh, 60, uh, they, you know, got basically fell in love and she dropped out after her sophomore year to marry my dad. And she's, you know, and so she was sort a, of like beautiful, heartbreaking 19 year old bride. And then a couple of years later, you know, went on to have me and then my two sisters came. So within like from her marriage to when she had three kids, it was like four years. And uh, there she Imagine. was, right? And my dad was in the Navy. And anyways, long story short, um, she was my first years of my life. She was a kind of a, she was a stay-at-home mom. And then when I was a teenager, so Gloria Steinem time, and yeah, it was like I got to go back and finish. So she went back to school, finished her degree, got her master's in psychology. My father had to step up because he was kind of the, you know, executive, come home, take a run, have a martini kind of sure. day, waited on him. And all of a sudden he had to kind of step it up. But so I watched my mother. So you had steakums? Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of mac cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I watched her passion around the women's issues, her going back to school and standing in her in her passion, standing in her power, redefining the family. And then she got a job at a community college doing women's reentry programs. So cool. That's where I really, she come home with the stories. And I was so taken with, these women who were coming back to school, many of them had had difficult things happen to them. And I just remember one story in particular where a woman, my mom was kind of coaching this woman whose husband um, had left the family, met somebody else, abandoned them. And she had three little girls and she was trying to make life work and going back to school. And I remember my mom and I talking about this and I was like, wow, she's got resilience and stand, you know, and I remember my, my mom said, you know, it, it's, you know, just women, what, what we have, what we bring, you know, our strength and right. our, you know, resilience to get through the difficult times and take care of our little, our babies. And so I just was like kind of awakened by not, not, not only my mother's shift, but then to her stories, which led me to kind of my interest in women and empowerment and, you know, doing the things that bring you passion and never giving up and, you know, making a contribution in the world and not being average. Hmm. Not to be average. I was hoping as I was listening to your story, I was hoping, I hope that you're the last generation of women that has to put on a pantsuit and run the male machine in order to advocate for women's leadership in this world. Because I really can imagine, although if I had your resume, I can imagine how proud I would be of myself and for my accomplishments, but I also can imagine what that cost you to have to do that in that way. Yeah, well, you know, it's, um, you know, it's interesting because I never really thought of it as like, a, it was kind of like always been, it's been my kind of my North Star, right? Mm -hmm. So it's been like my passion kind of, kind of like just things, you know, kind of going down that road where then things would appear, Mm -hmm. you know, based on one thing led to the other, right. On kind of the passion and, um, and we are, we are kind of a product of our times, right. So like, I see, I was 40 when I had my daughter. So, you know, she, I hope her life is going to be, you know, much different than mine and mine better than my mother's and my mother's better than her mother's right. As, sure. as far as women's advancement and opportunities mm -hmm. and equality. Right. right. 
but I feel like, you know, I've, I, that I've contributed to the conversation, contributed to this aspect of leadership and mm-hmm. that, you know, that my passion has l- given me the opportunity to make some difference yeah. in the world. What I appreciate about your interest in leadership is how much it's connected to wanting people to lead with humanity at the forefront, you know, and I, and I'd love for you to speak about that a little bit, because I feel like even in, even in, in considering people to interview for this series, right. There's, there's so many productivity people, you know, and mindset people's like, there's all this stuff. Right. And it, and it, for me, it tends to be a little bit male in its energy, right? It's a lot of like, get your mind up, get your mind on her, you know, and it all feels a little bit like get your big sword and go get the thing, you know? And, and I know that they don't mean it like that, but it can have that, like, it can feel that way for me sometimes. And, and I find like, I'm the older I get, the more I'm drawn to people who speak about leadership and productivity and, uh, and forward momentum from, from a more liminal space, you know, from a space that has a little bit more freedom to kind of bob and weave because my experience is being a single mom. There's my life of entrepreneurship and motherhood and just life has like, I have not had the, I couldn't just go out and hunt the thing. Like I had to manage all these little things. It was so much more this than, you know. Totally. Well, our humanity is right. That's what we're, I mean, the shared humanity, you know, of things that make us human mm-hmm. and uh, is what makes life worth living, right? It's like the connections we have with people and, you know, the connections are made when I we realize, wow, we're both single moms. Wow, right. we both have children, you know, in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both have these experiences, right? In order to figure that out, you have to actually have a sharing conversation. That's right. Right. So, like, who are you and who am I, and what do we? Where, how do we have this connect? Mm-hmm. And um, and those that and that creates just like a really beautiful kind of, of conversations. And oh my God, you've experienced that. Me too, right? Yeah. And so that's. Um, you know, that's what I have found really interesting in life. And then in the workplace, it's like that same concept, right? It's how do we create in the workplace this place where it's like, well, you know, how are you doing? And I see you and you're more than just getting this, these numbers done, right? Mm-hmm. The head part, I call it the head. Yeah. And the head is what, you know, sets the um, purpose for an organization. So you have to have some head, obviously, which is budgets and processes and, you know, a vision and a strategy. And that's all well and good. But what gets people to come along and put passion into your purpose is the heart. Mm. And the heart part is the words like vulnerability and empathy and kindness and care. Mm -hmm. And so the new leadership model is how do we help our leaders um, and I always say it's an and, it's not an or, but you can't abandon, obviously, strategy sure. and budget, mm-hmm. but how do you bring in the heart part, which is, I care about you, or me too, or what do you think, right? Right, And that's what keeps people on your team. That's what keeps people passionate for your mission. Yeah. And, you know, that old model of masculine model of only head didn't have the heart, Mm-hmm. And so it was just all head and, you know, you just come along or else. And I always say to people, you know, you can get anybody to do anything for a short period of time, but you won't get their heart and getting people's heart in and allowing them to be themselves, their authentic self 
is what makes life and work and family. And even in the families, right? How do we help our children be their most authentic selves? Right. Not a mini me. Right. Right. But, and so the same with our workers, how do we help our workers be their best selves and are they in the right job? Well, and how do you navigate that in the workforce when for me, so much of that has to do with personal development and self-awareness, right? Because in order to know how you're impacting your colleagues, in order to know how much you're pissing in the pool of your workplace, you have to have some self-awareness about who you are and what you're bringing to the table and like what you're like, you got to know your own communication style, for example. Am I someone who, do I listen? Am I an interrupter? Do I take other people's, um, do I come with empathy? Like where, what do I bring to the table? And that feels like that requires more than like a 360 review. Oh, totally. It's a lifelong uh, commitment to self-knowledge. Mm. That's really, I mean, leadership is self-knowledge because if you don't know, first of all, you know, how many times have you met people that are in, that have, you know, spent their whole life in a career that wasn't even them? right? Because their mother thought they should get an accounting degree or yeah. you know, whatever. So, so are you authentically in the right job or the right industry for you where you have passion? Did you even get a choice? Yeah. 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 Did you even get a choice? And um, so, yeah, so that's part of it. Are you even, you know, in the uh, authentically you, right? And really leaders today need to, to have conversations with their people, Right, like mm. to be able to uh, find ways to have those connections with your people to find out what's going on with them, and what they want in their life, and what's working for them. And so, for all of us, right? Who's giving you? I always say, who's your truth teller? Yeah. Who and asking people. I, I had a leadership friend of mine tell me, it, leaders that have guts will ask their team, "What are the behaviors that I am doing that are getting in the way of our success?" Right. And yeah. And, and that's a terrifying question for most people if they haven't done their work to be able to manage that feedback well. I mean, we all know working around somebody who's completely uninvolved, unevolved, <laughs> uh, or is unconscious, you know, of the, I call it dead bodies in the road because they're so focused on and they don't realize the people that are just like, you know, that they're laying, that are laid out from their unconscious behaviors of unkindness. Yeah. And, um, but I think, you know, I think there is a movement for, away from this with the millennial generation, you know, and I have some clients that's like, they really pride themselves on, we don't have a single asshole in this company. Wow. That's because amazing. That's a beautiful, I'd so much rather see Forbes list of companies with no assholes. Right. Yeah. That yeah. would be a may, way cooler list for me. Southwest airlines is a company by the way, that has completely from day one, 50 years of where our company, our mission is love. Wow. That's and they beautiful. Treat their people with love and kindness. And you know what? You can kind of tell that as a customer of Southwest yes. because they really do. They have a customer service like not like none other, truly yeah. like none other, like you'd have to love your people to do that kind of customer service. And they somehow found out how to be, they're the most profitable airline in the country. They somehow still have free bags. Okay. And they somehow are able to do that. And they, this, but that's their, you know, their um, engagement scores are like in the 90s. Like 92% of people say they're happy working at Southwest. 92% say they'll go the extra mile. Are you finding, is that coming through 
uh, are co corporations having greater training involved in this stuff? Are they training their employees earlier? Like what's, what is, what's creating this change and what can we advocate for more change in? Well, I think, you know, always in anything, when a company has to have a CEO who, who the top of the, the, you know, the chain has to have a belief that this company has a culture of kindness, empathy, um, how we treat our people, right? So even as we watch these companies bring their people back to work, right? This is the opportunity of a lifetime for, mm -hmm. you can't, don't waste an 18 month pandemic right. on, right? Step back, see what's, how things are different. How are you gonna go back to work where your people feel valued and seen? And so the CEO has to kind of set the model, which is what happened at Southwest from day one, uh, Herb Keller and um, Colleen Barrett, the two founders, started it on that mantra. Mm. And um, and as the leadership has progressed, that's the, so it has to start there, right? And then, yes, there's training. So it's a different shift in training, right? Mm -hmm. So training, you know, leadership of self and leadership of others is the two leadership programs that I teach, which yeah. is how do you motivate people today in a new world? Right. right. And what does it look like? And um, and how are you showing up? And what's your reservoir of goodwill? Mm -hmm. What do people like you? Do people respect you? You know, it's interesting. Um, I spent 25 years as a commercial photographer um, and I still do that work while I coach. But I've been it's been fascinating to watch over the years, the transitions, because on that side of the branding, like there's so much push about the story that you tell as the company and what you care about and right. And how you visually articulate your values and how you message your values. And it's interesting to see who pays lip service, right? Who pays lip service to generosity? Who's turned love into um, an interesting brand message that you can tell isn't backed up with an ounce of credibility or real give a shit about it whatsoever. Like it's not built into their culture. It's not built. It's, it's lip service uh, in messaging and in visuals. And that's, that's, it's been an interesting thing to watch those shifts happen. Kind of like the memes and all the three tips to better leadership, right? <laughs> like three tips to being a better leader, right? Uh, you know, as if it were all those things were that simple. Right. Well, sometimes you have to hold people when you're trying to do a shift in culture that's been different. You one of the things that has been effective is holding people accountable for different behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with some big hospitals where they there was initiative for surgeons to be a little bit more um, heart centered when they dealt with their patients, right? And um, so their bonuses, part of their bonuses or financial packages were dealt were uh, based on, you know, that score, a piece of it, of that wow. score of how their patient relations went. And there's beliefs that, you know, when you're delivering really difficult news, mm. you need to do it in a way that is, that is, has empathy and compassion. And there, this particular hospital that I worked with said, we don't, we're not going to take surgeons that don't have this dual side to them. Wow because it matters to us and that's our customers will feel cared about even with the worst of news. Right. And they'll come back to our hospital, but everyone knows who's had a difficult experience with a doctor um, where there wasn't love and compassion to a very difficult situation that the rest of your life, you will never forget that. Right. Right. And you'll never refer anybody to that right. organization. Right. So yeah. that's coming. That so, so sometimes there needs to be, and then there needs to be kind of some, seminars or some um, trainings around well, what does that mean to be 
empathetic to a, a client or how do you, how, how, what does that mean being a more caring leader, right? And so people need support and help to do behavior changes. Because if you've all of a sudden you're 50 years old and you've been told, okay, you got to lead a totally different way. Right. There some people need support on that. What do you think for people who are re-emerging from this pandemic, whether they're, whether they're not interested in going back to the job they had before, or they're really excited to go back because they don't really know what they're doing anymore. Like this has all changed or the people who are really excited to go back, but they want to go back and do something different. What are things that people can do to make themselves um, that much more appealing? And like, it feels like such an opportunity for people who are natural leaders to really like be courageous enough. If you step into that now, it feels like there's a lot of possibility for real leaders if they step into that. What are some things that people who feel drawn to that can really do to, to better position themselves right now? That's an interesting question. You know, I think we don't, we're just kind of figuring out what's the new normal, right? Are we ever really going to go back hundred percent the way it was before? I don't think we can. And no. companies that are going to go back, like you said before, we're seeing all the data already that people are quitting. And so I think, you know, how do leaders help organizations kind of, you know, like maybe hybrid, you know, how do we, kind of step into a hybrid model of, you know, how we think about work differently, how we're more um, as leaders, you know, in this relationship with the office, which is, I think what we're seeing and the trends are showing us is that relationship with the office will be places where we collaborate. We don't need to go to the office to sit in front of a computer for eight hours. And it's right. You don't need to be babysat. Yeah. Right. And right. so, wow, I can do that at home. And what there's what we're seeing in the trends now, it'll be interesting to see a year from now, but that that most workers will have the ability to work one or two days at least from home, mm-hmm. depending on what their job is and depending on what the industry is and all that. So I think leaders who come with more creativity and innovation in the office place, you know, building relationships in the office, um, clarity about what you know, this is where I think it's really important, but clarity about what work needs to get done mm. and mm. what's really with, important. Yeah. And what needs to be done in the office and what needs to be, can be done at home. You know what I mean? So leaders who kind of come with that new thinking mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to, you know, to support organizations in this transition, because it's kind of scary still. I think companies are like, well, what, oh my God, right. If, we, if, if Morgan Stanley says everyone's back to work or else, and we're a big bank. Do we follow along with that or do we do our own thing or what'll happen? And so, you know, I think the calmer people can be and, you know, really just, wow, we can do this. You know, we can do this differently. We can be thought leaders and, you know, kind of get with the modern workplace and have leaders that will show up like that. It feels to me almost like we're creating, we're in this paradigm shift if we so choose right? Like if we so choose, we can accept this as a paradigm shift and say, okay, like in order to do something different, you have to have some courage and you have to have permission. You've got to give yourself permission and then you have to have the courage to do the thing, right? And I mean, you've been, you're a living example of that, like to do any of the things you had to have the courage to do it and then the willingness to show up for it and make it happen. And I think right now, if the Morgan Stanley's, I, I think, if those sort of dinosaurs of that paradigm want to hold fast, I just don't think they're going to have as not, I don't think they're going to have enough of a hold. I think people have given themselves enough permission now that like some people who are still in their fear and in that way might still hold on to that for security's sake. 
I have a feeling that most people are really interested in a different paradigm. Oh, absolutely. Terrified of how to do that and unsure of how to do it and scared there'll be repercussions that they don't know what to do with. Uh, Right. Totally. totally. And you know, it's, um, it is a new paradigm and it is a new time and yeah. And you don't want to waste, you know, this, this folk, this giant focus group or, or, you know, giant pilot, right. Of working from home. That was like the gift of this, of this pandemic. And you, you know, it worked. Nobody can deny, okay, that it actually worked. I feel like um, whether we like it or not, consciousness changed in this, right? Like our consciousness expanded in this moment, whether people intended for that or not, you know, like now people seem to, they, people know enough to be dangerous to themselves. And and I mean that as a compliment, you know, like, like I have always felt grateful to have known just enough to be like, I'm not playing that. I don't want to, I'm not going to wait in that parent line. You know, I could never wait in the parent line. My poor son, he's like, can't, he's like my Alex P. Keaton of the family. He's like, can't we just wait in the line? I'm like, we cannot. I cannot just wait in the line. Like that is 600 cards of rule followers. I can't, like, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to walk 10 feet from the second aisle. I can't. I always think one of the biggest, um, most important aspects of leadership is risk-taking, mm. right? When people have asked me, you know, what, what do you, what do I think is one of the, if I could name one thing about my career, kind of how I hopped around and did some different things, it was always the willingness to take risk, mm-hmm. you know, because growth is risk. And, you you know, you have to be able to kind of to make that jump and know, well, you know, I'm going to go jump towards working for Obama as one right. example. Like, so when yeah. I was running the Center for Leadership at Harvard and I had this great job and I loved it and it could have been a lifelong job, right? Sure. And then all of a sudden there's this senator running for president and nobody thought he had a chance, but he was really interesting. Yeah. And so I, and my own parents were like, what are you doing? Right. You know, this solid job at Harvard. And like, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to risk to take, go, go. And I didn't, and the funny part is I thought he'd probably, because he was so new on the scene, flame out after New Hampshire, but I thought this will be a really interesting to watch his leadership. So I really wanted to go towards that. Like, wow, what a great opportunity. And he kept winning, right? And then he became the president. And um, and that, like, you know, I had to give up my Harvard job, but then mm-hmm. when he won, that's how I got my book deal, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so all these other things happened right. because you were able to take the risk. And you know, I always say, what's the worst thing that can happen if you take a risk? Right? I think the worst thing that can happen, I've really gotten to the point, maybe it's from my own sitting at the bottom of my own piles of, of decisions and failures and successes is like, I really think we're only afraid of the story we're going to tell ourselves, right? Like, honestly, like, because if you had done that and it didn't work out, then you were, you would have been confronted with a choice of what's the story you're going to tell yourself about this experience. Are you yeah. so proud of yourself that you tried something new and you, and you learned something amazing and you went for this thing and you had an opportunity, like, are you going to tell yourself that story? Or are you going to tell yourself the story of like, I quit my job. That was so stupid. Why would I have done that? I, I could see, right. I had no way of knowing my parents were right. That was really foolish, right? You can second arrow yourself to death or, totally. or honor the choice, but there's, there's a lot of like leaps of faith involved in leadership that I think people don't speak about. And it's really not, it's not a Christian narrative or a Jewish narrative or an Islamic narrative. It's just a, there's something connected between courage and faith yes, and a willingness to step into the unknown that comes with also a willingness to say, no matter what happens, I won't 
hurt myself because of my choice. Right, right. Yeah. And also like, that's what makes life kind of fun, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've met people who, and you know, this is a choice and I don't judge it, but they grow up in the same town. They go to the the same schools as, you know, they stay in the same town. They have their kids. The kids go to the same schools. They they live in the, and that's the, they, their yeah. life. Right. And they go on some vacations <laughs> and that's, that's a choice. But what, you know, there's like a, I would say to my daughter, there's like a big world out there, right. With lots of adventures and lots of people to meet and lots of things. And part of life is failure. Cause I always say, look, you know, I always, and I've done research, I mean, research and workshops on failure and resilience that is failure a bad thing. No, failure is like a beautiful thing because it helps you figure out who you are and you always learn from it. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, part of the learning is I won't go back and do whatever that was again. Right. Yeah. But it is but a resilience builder. Yeah. And risk is what, so everything, every step I've taken in my career and my life has been a risk and not everything's turned out you know, perfectly, but each step along the way has led to something else, some new learnings, people I've met, right? And it just, I think it makes life more of an adventure. Um, so I don't know. I think people think about failure different, should think about failure differently because, you know. What about the people who are afraid of success? Because I think like one of the things I feel like I've heard in the mom circles, like I've, I've been self-employed as long as I've had my kids. So that's always been a part of my maternal reality, um, except for the first couple of years. And I, I know that other women have said to me like, well, I don't want to be that busy. I don't really want to, I don't want, I don't want to run my own business because I don't want to have that much responsibility. I don't want to have success because I don't, I'm afraid it'll be overwhelmed. Like I hear a lot, almost at middle age, I'm feeling like I'm hearing more women speak to me about their fear of what would happen if they were successful than they actually are about failing. Like, I think by now they've had enough failure to be like, ah, I could figure out failure. Yeah. Right? Like I never lost the 10 pounds or I never, whatever, but the success seems to be the thing. Like I wonder when I was a kid, I think I was probably terrified of having your life out of the like, oh my God, well, how will I, how would I do that? Right. My, my fear of, I don't know how I would make that happen. I don't know the steps. I don't have the tactical. And then I think I would have been afraid that like, I, like I'd be so busy and I would never be sleeping and I wouldn't have, I would know how I would have friends and I'd have to wear kitten heels and I would have to, <laughs> right. Like I have all these delusional fears of like what a corporate big life as a female leader looks yeah. like. And I think uh, so interesting. Like, I wonder if other women, I know other women have that. And like being somebody who lived that life, what do you, what do you feel about that? Like, what's well, the, rever what's the reverse? Like for the women who are afraid of success, can you like dismantle, deconstruct that so that yeah. you can put that to bed? Well, you know, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, so I think it's like, I was just thinking when you were talking, I was like, it's like, you don't eat an apple whole. Okay. <laughs> You, you take a bite of the apple every day, right? Or so it's like part of success, you get into these jobs and they seem very overwhelming. And I will tell you when I became the COO of- uh, But that just is overwhelming. Betsy. Oh, it was. That just is. It is <laughs> and it was, but I had no experience to be the chief operating officer of a presidential campaign. I mean, I had worked in the White House, but I ran a pol it was a, it was a outreach and policy team you know, it wasn't a numbers and budgets and all that, right? So all of a sudden I get this opportunity. It's a huge stretch. I was gonna say, does it feel like an opportunity or are you like terrified? 
Well, the first call that I had, I remember this call, like it was yesterday with David Pluff, who was the campaign manager. And I was on this call and he was giving me the list of all the things I was responsible for. And I literally was like, um, oh my God. Right. And I just kept my calm and I was like, took, you know, just took every, all the notes down of what I need to do and everything. And I was like, when I hung up and I was like, oh my God, this is really de detail oriented and data oriented and like, but you know, I just put, I just put one foot in front of the other. And the other thing I think in any job and particularly this one, I, I because it was so out of my wheelhouse was um, I asked for help. And it was really interesting because um, John Kerry who had run for president in 04, his CFO team had called me and said, do you need help? And we're here and we'll, and as the campaign was getting, we'll give you, we'll pro bono. But over time, maybe you can hire us. So I went to them a lot. And when issues came up and things like, you know, I remember one call from our one of our fundraisers saying, oh, we just had this fundraiser. And I was in Chicago where the headquarters were and they had had a fundraiser in DC. And the head of fundraising called me and said, uh, we, we had this big night last night with all these checks. Where do you want us to deposit the checks? Like, and I was know. like, what? You know what I mean? I was so new. I was like, what? And I, I was like, aren't you, don't we, don't we deposit them in the, in the pack money? She goes, no, no, it's the campaign. And if we don't get them in the bank account, we have to return the checks to all the donors in 10 days, 10 days. So I was like, oh my God. And so You're like, don't we have a bank account? Yeah, right. I was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So I was like, um, where's the adult? Yeah. Right. So I was like, I literally was like, this is the funniest thing. And I told, I copped to this to her now because we laugh about it but I was like you know what I said um oh you know what Brock's on the other line can I call you back <laughs> so I'm like oh my gosh so I called these the, my friends this my new friends the CEO I mean the CFO of, and I said what do you do about cash sharing money oh, and they took like does the somebody account. can somebody open a bank account stamp? yeah right and it was a little more complicated than that yeah, and sure. like, here's plan a here's plan b this is what we recommend so about, so I got my ducks in a row and about two hours later, I called her back and I said, Hey, you know, uh, here's what we're doing with that money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she, anyway, so you just kind of keep your calm. There's always a way to figure it out. And you just take a day at a time, you know, it's really just like everything, right? It's, like sometimes the mystery of life is that it's just not that mysterious. It's just the same thing. Rinse and repeat, put your pants on, be courageous. Try to be honest. You know, when I was in the White to House, people. yeah, when I was in the White House and I was this young, you know, I think I was 34, 35, you know, and I would be around all the cabinet secretaries for different things, right? And different meetings. And I remember thinking, I saw, you know, in various situations, some of their vulnerabilities, their insecurities. They all wanted the president's time like everybody else did. They wanted his attention. And I remember thinking, wow, we're all human. We just ended up in these jobs, right? We're not better than anybody else. We just happen to have an expertise or a passion or a connection that got us in these positions. But it, the big takeaway for me was, wow, everyone's trying to figure it out. Nobody has all the answers. We're all human beings. We all put our pants on in the morning the same way. And we're just, you know, and so it really taught me at a young age that just because you're treasury secretary doesn't mean that you're, you know, have it all figured out. You're just in that job and, you know, you've had experience that got you there and you happen to end up in that job. And a lot of other people could have gotten that job too, 
right? But it's so it really taught me that wow, we're all human and you know, we all have struggles and sometimes we don't feel worthy and sometimes we feel like a fraud and you know, and so yeah, it's no matter what job you have. There's something valuable. There's something valuable about receiving about about getting that information from a high level source like by right because i think like a friend of mine one of one of the speakers i interviewed at the end she gave me this really positive feedback and it was so kind and it was so generous of her and i was sharing it with a couple of my friends and they were like we tell you that all the time like what's wrong with you we tell you the same thing all the time why don't you hear it from us and i was like why don't i hear it from you and i thought well because i feel like you would just tell me that to be nice to me or to make me feel better about something but this woman doesn't know me she doesn't have any reason to say it and i think there's something in like i had even had in the questions like what is that like to be in the White House and to experience life at that level? Because I feel like watch as a kid, watching people watch my dad as a minister, they had this associate, they had these assumptions of what it, what our life was or what his life was or who he was based on what they, but based on the role he played. Yeah. And it was, and it was really a setup for my dad because he wasn't always that person. And he felt conflicted about how to live, which part of him to live into publicly. Yes. And I feel like working at the white house, I can imagine when you used to see behind the curtain and you're like, they don't have this figured out any more than like the guy at the seven <laughs> Like that's probably sort of like, Oh, thank like, Oh, great. Like, Oh, thank God. Like then I don't have to figure it out. I'm like off with the kitten heels. Like, okay, I don't need this. Or it could be also kind of terrifying. Like, oh shit, like nobody's got it figured out. Yeah, nobody. I mean, everyone comes to life with insecurities, childhood traumas, difficulties, sadnesses, losses. Um, so we all have, that's what connects us in our humanity, right? Mm. And it's it's like even our President Biden now, right? I mean, you know, just the the his humanity and the losses he's gone through in life and and now he just lost his beloved German Shepherd. How many people have gone through losing an animal, right? And yeah. so it's all these shared things that we- And to admit we, it's sad, right? To lose the dog is one thing, but to publicly admit it's sad. I have feelings that lo- that are grief about losing my dog. President equals human being. Totally. That's, he's modeling that for us. Yeah. You know, in every that. way. Yeah. Well, so did you, Betsy. And thank you so much for that. You know, I feel really, I feel like it's, um, the older I get, the more I think that we as women still like, I don't know why every woman has never attended a birth, for example. Like there's so many weird things about being women that are still kind of kept in the dark about, you know, like, why haven't we all, at least in America, in the West, like we, we don't tend to go and be witnesses at things that are very female. Yes. Right. Like we haven't. So we, we stay scared to death to deliver babies because we've never seen it happen. We don't know that experience. We get afraid of periods because we don't know about them because like, they're new. Like all these things happen to us that we're not accustomed to perimenopause. That's a whole new who knew. I think there are things people could have been telling me all this time. I don't think it's a mystery. I think people just aren't aren't speaking to it. Right. And I think for me, that's becoming yeah. like feminine leadership is like, let's be sharing in the truth. Like, let's have fe- women leaders who've lived in corporate America talk about what that's really like without being in competition with the women who stayed at home the whole time. Right. right? Like, let's let's have the the community of women acknowledging what that leader that the leadership looks like us being in community and in connection and in, and living as a collective. Right. And supporting each other's choice. Yeah. Right? Because choice right. to be a stay-at-home mom or a choice 
to be in the workplace. Sometimes it's not even a choice to have to meet. That's right. Not the women who would choose. In either direction. Yeah, in either direction. Mm -hmm. That's but right. Aspect of necessity, right? But you're right. And the whole thing on menopause, there was just something on uh, Marie Schreiber today on uh, NBC morning show was this whole thing on menopause. Yeah. I mean, like I don't feel like at 47, I don't feel like I should be having to enter into that with any kind of mystery because there's like 8 billion people on the planet, half of which are women and half of those have already done this. Right. And they were, they were talking about um, how this, this, that women don't know enough about menopause and doctors aren't uh, trained in menopause issues. And so just all the stuff about menopause and from someone who's gone through it one a while ago, um, like five or six years ago now, I was amazed at how few people talked about it, knew anything about it. And, uh, and, and so I've become a, kind of an evangelist about it. Actually, we can come back and do an hour interview about menopause, oh and what we God, can I all expect. Yes. yes. You can expect to sweat and smell like a donkey. That's two things <laughs> you can expect. They don't tell you. Unless you go on bioidentical hormones. Oh, okay. See, yeah. That's yep. another story. That's another story. Okay. <laughs> oh, where can people find you and, and, and play more with you? Yeah. So my website is betsymyers.com. And uh, yeah, and uh, that's probably the best place to, to okay. find me. Yeah. Yeah. This is such a gift, Betsy. It's I feel so, so grateful, honestly. You. Thank you. Thank you for role modeling to women everywhere. And also thank you for being an advocate for us because I think there are so many things that happen at political levels that none of us even know about. Truly. I think the majority of us are we're we have no idea what's really going on behind those doors. And I feel better knowing that there are women in there fighting on my behalf in ways that I will never know. So thank you for that. For oh, you're welcome. And there are lots of women in the Biden administration that are doing that just now. And, you know, to those out there that think, you know, government doesn't work. Well, I mean, one of the beautiful things that I saw was that there's passionate people in there in government making huge differences that often people don't really realize. So thank you for that. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. And thank you for having these conversations. And uh, I think you're a great advocate for bringing really interesting conversations to the table. And you're so easy thank to you. talk to. Well, thanks. I just, yeah. you know, I felt for myself, like what I really needed was to not feel alone in my experience of needing to be with what's here and then figuring out what's next for me. And so as I thought, okay, well, who am I turning to for that insight? And as I think about career choices or changes or pivoting, like everybody's in a state of, what's here and what's next. And I thought, well, then okay. you know what, then the way I can be generous is to, is to bring as many interesting voices to that table, because I think it's too easy to feel alone and isolated in our own experience and therefore then stuck and like not able to see a path forward, you know? Oh, totally. I mean, I always say, what's the one thing we can count on in life? Change. <laughs> right. And love. And love. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for this, Betsy. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. This has been lovely to be with you. You've been listening to the Robin Ivy podcast. I want to thank you for spending this time together today. And if you enjoyed this episode and haven't done so already, please subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, leave me a review. This gets more listeners like you and I to hear the messages my guests share. That would mean so much to me. Last thing, the thoughts and views of each of my guests does not reflect my own personal viewpoints or opinions on topics discussed. This podcast is an open forum for dialogue, kindness, and insightful expression, and this often means looking at life through a new lens. 
I hope you love today's episode and invite you to join me once again at the table on the Robin Ivy podcast.